Thank you for tuning in to the Bill Bradley Collective, a weekly podcast located at the intersection of sports and politics with your hosts, Andrew, Ed, and Zach. Welcome to the Bill Bradley Collective. We are outside again in a beautiful day, uh, what should have been Kentucky Derby Day. We are in New London, Connecticut, which is the combination of Paris and South Florida because it combines the cultural advantages of Paris with the athletes of South Florida. <laughs> I'm going to start today by talking about the great Mina Kimes, former Connecticut resident, at least as a Yale student, and her broadcast last week on The Daily, which talked about the mystery of the 1987 Don Mattingly Tops card, which inexplicably said his birth certificate says he was born in 1962, which would be a year later than he had always claimed. You should listen to the podcast despite the next spoiler alert. The spoiler alert is it turned out that in 1986, Don Mattingly was tired of answering questions about the fact he was in a slump and just randomly mentioned he was born in 1962, not 1961, and his birth certificate could prove it, and that changed the story about his slump. And everyone, because he's the Yankee captain and Donnie Baseball, chuckled approvingly over this. And I'm sitting there and thinking, what a dick. I mean, here are people who are trying to do their jobs and because you can't get a hit, you decide you're going to screw them over by telling them a lie. Don Mattingly is in the tradition that started with him and ended with Derek Jeter of excellent but wildly overrated Yankee captains. I will say this from the start. This has been a difficult week. There's been a lot of agitation, aggravation, anger, upset, and there is some place in my psyche that when all of these things are just kind of floating around like electrons, deep in my soul there is a, in case of emergency, break glass, and in that case is a 1985 AL MVP vote. Because no one ever questions it. Because Don Mattingly won almost unanimously. He hit a 324 with 35 homers and 145 RBIs. Plus, he was Donnie fucking baseball. And everyone thought it was so great that he wants to spend uh, the rest of his life in Indiana because people roll their eyes when he orders a steak and asks for ketchup in New York. Well, first of all, if you order a $70 New York cut of steak and then smother it in ketchup, which is the Eric Trump of condiments, a quasi-liquid, sugary red paste that has to be spelt two ways as though it works by an alias, then you deserve to have your eyes rolled at you. But he wasn't the MVP in the league. If you look at wins above replacement, war, he was fourth in his city because Gary Carter was slightly ahead. Dwight Gooden posted the best war record in the last 50 years. But more importantly, Ricky Henderson was on his own team. In fact, Mattingly was not in the top 10. He was ninth in position players. Henderson that year had the greatest season a leadoff hitter has ever had. He had 
a 419 on-base percentage. He's, he had a 525 slugging percentage. He had 80 steals with only 10 caught stealings. He had 146 runs scored, which is like a 1930s number. I remember that season. I remember being so goddamn frustrated because Don Mattingly got credit for two RBIs when he every time he walked, he started in the first inning, Henderson was on third and Willie Randolph was on second. It was ridiculous. And then they get into the, oh, well, he should be in the Hall of Fame argument. The Hall of Fame? He had 222 lifetime home runs. His all-time warp is 42.4. He's tied with Davey Lopes and Jose fucking Canseco. That's who he's tied with for 456th place all time. Well, but yeah, but you don't understand how clutch he was. You know what I remember about the Yankees? They won the World Series before him. They won the World Series after him. He was the worst manager. He was the Isaiah Thomas of baseball managers. And how do I know that? He's managing the Marlins, which is the closest you can get into it to being in a witness relocation program while still maintaining your own name. So great job, Donnie, for screwing over sports reporters who make 28-5 a year and having this tops guy only be remembered because he he believed you because you were Donnie Baseball. And great job. You know, I understand, you know, oh well, he had a short career. So did you know, Dizzy Dean's in the Hall of Fame. He had a short career. Yeah. You know what? You don't have to make, repeat the same fucking mistakes over and over and over. You know what I didn't do when I got divorced? Call my my ex-wife's sisters and see if, if they were available for a date. That didn't happen. You don't have to make the same mistakes over and over. In conclusion, Don Mattingly was a fine player, I guess. No, he was a fine player. He had five good years. Screw him. Screw this story. And he should have finished about fourth in the AFL. AL MVP. Look at Wade Boggs here that year. Sweet Jesus. I, I'm, de- I'm definitely going to, to listen to that podcast now. And before we get to our resident uh, Yankee fan, Andrew, for, for a response, I'm going to go full full birther here. And, and Don Mattingly needs to release his long-form birth certificate. Um, <laughs> we, we cannot confirm 1961 or 62 unless we see the long-form certificate. And until he gets it, all discussion of him as a player should end. My memory, I mean, Mattingly was before me. I have two memories of Don Mattingly. One is Susan Waldman going, Donnie, Donnie, like every fucking day on 660. And then the Yankees where he, he gets, or uh, the Simpsons where he gets thrown off the team because he refuses to shave his sideburns. I mean, Don Mattingly, I've never understood the love for him. I mean, there are plenty of Red Sox that I have like a deep affection for uh, that were mediocre and that the Red Sox never won a World Series with. You know, I've never got the Don Mattingly love. I mean, he's also not a good manager, so I guess he's he's equally as bad as a manager as he was. He's equally as mediocre as a manager as he was a player. And I'll throw this to you, Andrew. Defend Don Mattingly against Ricky Henderson, one of the 10 best players in the history of baseball. Can't do it. Uh, Dave Winfield, can't do it. And as I rub the I'm at wear, my Yankee hat that I'm wearing right now, I'll rub the logo. To a Yankee fans of a certain ilk, uh, a lot of what Ed might have said <clears throat> would sound like sacrilegious to sort of like desecrate the legacy of Donnie baseball. I'm really having a hard time finding much disagreement with anything that came out of his mouth because this is a guy who there's, and you said it, they're la- they go to the world series in 81, the strike year. They don't go back to the world series till 96. Guess who's on neither team. 
Don Mattingly. Okay, the one the the one playoff series he plays, they lose in '95. He goes and they win, <laughs> they win four of the next five fucking World Championships. And it just started the tradition of these Yankee captains, who surprisingly are white. Jorge Posada, Jorge Posada has more lifetimes wins above replacement than Don Mattingly. You know who the Yankee broadcasters never bring up as who should be a Hall of Famer? Jorge Posada. You know why? His name is fucking Jorge Posada. But regardless, it set up us for 20 years of Derek Jeter worship, who covered about as much ground as shortstop as my Ottoman. <laughs> I'm going with a little more contemporary for rants, which is over the last year, uh, the U.S. women's soccer team has filed a wage discrimination and equal pay lawsuit against U.S. soccer as an organization. Uh, led to the great moment when the U.S. women's team, after the winning came back and the head of the U.S. soccer, who has since been fired uh, or resigned, but we all know what that means, because he said women players are paid less because they're inferior to men players, uh, that when he walked out, the crowd chanted equal pay at him. So I'm glad that asshole's got what he deserved. Uh, but this week, a federal judge in California ruled for U.S. soccer on the claims of wage discrimination. They said the claim uh, was not a triable issue of pay disparity that the U.S. women's team had not proven it. Their claim was that it violated the Equal Pay Act in Title Seven of Civil Rights. The judge ruled that that did not, that one, they didn't have enough evidence to show they're not paid for equal equal pay, but also ruled against the uh, Title Seven charges. The judge said the differences were due to collective bargaining agreements that the women chose to sign and that the women in the process of negotiation had turned down a proposal that would have made it similar to men to raise the base pay for all the soccer players and to allow for more contracted players to get more money. So basically the judge ruled, hey, these people did the right thing. They deserve to be fucking paid less. And he said that the the significantly higher bonuses that the men's players get are significantly less than the economic value by the slight base pay increase they got. They also ruled for for the U.S. soccer that even though the women's team was forced to play on more artificial turf, which led to Megan Rapinoe, who we all know became famous, uh, has the famous pose, uh, which is basically a fuck you to U.S. soccer. She tore ACL because they had to play on artificial turf uh, surfaces. They ruled that that did not violate you know the Civil Rights Act, that, that that was just because they were trying to expand it. And my take on this is twofold. One, in collective bargaining agreements, you give and you take. It is not a constant. There are trade-offs you make, and there are trade-offs you don't make. And you also, when you are collect, when you are in negotiations with management, management tells you how much money there is. That this is the pot of money. Do you think they gave U.S. women's soccer and U.S. men's soccer the same fucking pot of money, or was maybe the collective bargaining agreement less because women's soccer was was uh, had a smaller amount of money proposed? But secondly, this was a federal judge. Now I haven't confirmed this. But I'm willing to make a guess that this is probably a federal judge that was not appointed by Obama, you know, or even Bill Clinton for. It could have been Clinton. It could have been. It, it, it was probably fucking Clinton. <laughs> it, it's just to say that the women chose to be paid less than men it is such a mind boggling argument. And then the women are like, we're going to, the women's soccer team said, we're going to appeal. You know where they appeal to? Another higher court. You know where it eventually ends up? Trump's fucking Supreme Court. You're going to tell me Judge Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh, 
And uh, who's the guy that replaced uh, that? That Neil Gorsuch. Neil, Neil Gorsuch. Gorsuch. That Gorsuch are going to all of a sudden believe women are equal? No, no. They, all their rulings show if you're a white guy or if you're a corporation, they're going to fucking rule for you. And it's just another punch in the stomach that just like anyone who just believes in equality or believes that like just that fucking people are paid, should be paid the same, especially if one is wildly more successful than the other. There's a thing in like the the um the case where against the adverse working conditions where they were you know didn't get ruled in favor of it's like a victory tour it's this friendly tour they win the they win the World Cup in 2015 and they go on this tour and they're playing on playing these friendlies on like astroturf across the country across Canada too I think and like you're coming off of this what they, what they train four years for this arduous pressure cooker that is a just four year process building to that World Cup. They win that World Cup, and then U.S. Soccer sends them out on this tour, and they put them on these on these fields with astroturf, artificial turf, which not, not you know, look at the NFL. Like people on astroturf and artificial turf, they 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 tear their their legs up. That's why they don't make stadiums with that sort of turf anymore. Okay, and to put after after this competition, to put them out there in friendlies, on the part of U.S. Soccer, it is on their part. It is such a just fucking money grab. Let's go on a victory tour. We're going to reap all the money, and we're just going to put you out there on, on hazardous fields. Like you said, Rapino tears ACL in practice on, on this artificial turf. U.S. soccer needs to just get fucking detonated. The idea that they entered a contract is the same as if someone says, your money or your life, and holds a gun to your head, and you give them your wallet, and then... When the person gets caught and is arrested, you say, no, we entered a contract, a verbal contract, and he agreed to this decision. It's obviously insane. It could be a George W. Bush appointee. There's no way it's a Clinton or, or Obama appointee. The idea that collective bargaining is the enemy of the people involved in collective bargaining I, is such a right-wing trope. But ultimately, ultimately, and I guarantee you, and this will come up later on. Almost everything terrible, if you dig in America, if you dig long enough, Mitch McConnell's Beverly Hillbilly's grandmother's smiling death mask stares up at you. And it's because that is an insane view of what collective marketing is. You know, we, we talked, I think, last week in a rant, or maybe it was two weeks ago, uh, about how, you know, when Trump got elected, it was like, Oh, Jesus, it's going to be a fucking tornado. We're admittedly three white guys. Yeah, things were set back for us in certain ways. For women, I mean, it's been set back generations, not decades. Absolutely. Andrew? So in our sports-deprived world um, that we're currently living in, the ESPN's uh, The Last Dance documentary, this 10-part series on the 1997-98 Chicago Bulls, which was the last regular season that, Michael Jordan plays with the Bulls. Uh, it's he retires for three seasons after this. Um, spoiler: They go out on top. They win the title. This documentary. So we're through four of the ten parts, and this documentary. What it does is it's it's a it's a lineage of that of that singular season, ninety seven, ninety eight. But it's also contrasted with the the Bulls in Jordan's NBA lifetime from eighty three, eighty forty five to the present. And the last episode. And before I'm gonna get into something specific to last week's episode. In a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to do a deep dive on this documentary and on Jordan. 
which should be a lot of fun. So please join us for that. But on last week's episode, the Bulls, their first title comes in 91. They beat the Lakers. They blow the Lakers off the court in five games. To get to that point, to get to the NBA Finals, they have to vanquish the team that's beaten them the two previous seasons and the team that's won the previous two NBA titles, the Detroit Pistons, the famous, the bad boy Pistons. And I have just gone down this wormhole of like watching old, of like these, of, of these Pistons teams in the late 80s and how they play. So the 89-90 uh, Pistons that, that go back-to-back, win two titles, it's, it's like the bridge between two eras, really. You have Bird and uh, Magic Johnson, who collectively win eight titles in the 80s. That's Lakers-Celtics, that is, they save the league, really, and that's the story of the 80s. And then you have the Isaiah Thomas-led Pistons, the bad boys, 89-90, that leads to the Bulls, that win six titles in the 90s. They're sort of the bridge between these two great eras, and the era that had the Bulls never gotten over the hump against Detroit, the NBA as we know it, the aesthetic at the very least would not be anything uh, resembling what we see now. Um, what, the, what those teams did, and it's famously called the Jordan Rules, where they took a very sort of, I don't want to say thuggish, but this very aggressive approach. In by '89, uh, even without a ring, Jordan is the best player in the NBA, but the Pistons are the best team in the NBA. And it's the it's the physical will of the Pistons that that keep that keep Jordan down at eighty nine, keep him down at ninety. It's it's it, every time he tries to get to the basket, they just fucking hammer him, and they get away with it in large part. Yeah, there's personal fouls called, but these are fouls that in today's NBA, and this is where I'm kind of going with this is this team that that wins back to back titles, and that is honestly they go to Game Seven and eighty eight where they conceivably could have three peated, which I think there's a thing where like if you three peat three versus two, like, eh, whatever. Could you imagine a team? Could you imagine in 2020, the James rules, the LeBron rules, the Leonard rules, the Giannis rules, where a team, perhaps a better, more successful veteran team, and an ascendant young um, star that is the best player versus sort of like the best team. Could you imagine how that would play 30 years later now if that team basically just got off by by trying to physically bludgeon the, the league's best player. I love the city of Detroit. I've been there. I love the vibe there. I love everything about it. And I know that the city of Detroit's identity is very tied to this day to that team. Because, you know, when you get tied to the, the Lions or the Tigers, no. Uh, I always felt that that team thrived in an era where the NBA was a little lost, talent was down. That was a talented team. Like their their eighth best best player was probably better than the eighth best player of a championship team now. Like they were super deep. But Isaiah Thomas, who was a great player, was not Jordan, was not LeBron, he was not Game Elijah, he wasn't any of these people. And Dumars probably as their second best player was well behind everybody else um it was also unwatchable basketball like the league wasn't as popular as it had been or would be because no one wants to see that you know it's it's kind of the nhl problem when, when you figure out how to stop all the fun stuff then the league's less fun you know, I know David Stern gets credit as being the greatest commissioner in the history of the organized world, which I think there are like, 
I don't know, a thousand reasons to disagree with. But this might be case one because that team wasn't fine. They had very few technicals. I think they only had like twenty, forty thousand dollars in fines or something. Uh, Zach Lowe mentioned in his, in his podcast uh, with Bobby Marks. It just wasn't fun to watch them. It wasn't. It wasn't basketball the way it should be played. I remember when I was a, a teacher, our faculty would play our students in basketball. And if it was pure basketball, we would have gotten killed. But we always won because we just beat the shit out of them. Like because we were older and heavier and they came across the lane, you hit them with an elbow in the chest and nobody called it. And it's like, all right. And that was kind of the way the NBA was. I mean, like, okay, great, but there's a reason why the league was suffering then and it's not suffering now. You know, I I think about watching the doc and and obviously I'll, I'll, I'll we're going to get into it in a couple of weeks. I'm going to save save my comment on the last dance for that. One of the things is Isaiah Thomas is clearly just a prick. Um, of a person. Like he's, just, he's clearly just a prick. And Jordan, no, Jordan calls him an asshole on the, on the show. Yeah. And, Dad, you mentioned something that I think is, is somewhat important in this discussion. It's like, you know, Detroit's kind of cultural tie-in with this team. And, and, and there are other teams like, you know, the Broad Street Bullies in, in Philadelphia. But these guys were not the bad boys. They're babies. They're, it's like every other bully or every other kid that pushes an, around a smaller kid on the playground is the second somebody shoves them back, they go home crying, and I think that that was exemplified in Jordan beat them. They didn't have the intestinal fortitude to even stand there and shake their hands after they just got their ass kicked. They weren't bad boys. They were pansies, and that's how they should be remembered. After Mahorn left, Mahorn is the baddest man the NBA and, ever and had. So they win the title in 89, okay? And they have the expansion draft in 90, and Mahorn is the Minnesota Timberwolves pick from Detroit. So Mahorn's yep. on the first team. He's not on the second championship team. He's not there in 91 where the Bulls sweep them and the Pistons famously walk off the court without shaking hands. What what those Pistons teams did too was kind of like, and as much as, this is like tele, the TV contract changes, like the Pistons, it goes from CBS to NBC and, and the ratings for Jordan, they they go way up versus these like, you know, Pistons Blazers and, and the Pistons beating the Lakers that second year where they sweep them. The league though, like the, it's funny that Pat Riley the coach of like the, the the 80s Lakers, Showtime Lakers, this like up and down transition team, fast offense. He comes to the Knicks in the 90s and the Knicks are like Jordan's like greatest foil in the 90s really. And he kind of adapts this sort of kind of Jordan rules where like he wants to slow the game down. He throws Xavier McDaniel at him. He throws this big fucking front line, Mason and Ewing and Oakley, who ironically is like Jordan's best friend. But he tries to like goon it up and he fails. And then once Jordan leaves and it's like Nick's heat and Riley's in Miami, they're still trying to, it, these games are, are being played at this like archaic, slow, physical pace. And it's like unwatchable. The Pistons are really, these teams are like responsible for some of the most unwatchable like basketball of our lifetime. I think that's a great point. The NBA now is in a much better place. We're going to take a break now and we're going to go to what would have normally been the hallmark of our weekend, and thank God is not the Kentucky Derby. Beauty, grace, elegance. There's no question that the horse is God's finest creation, unmatched in style, capability, and strength. Now, 
that strength and beauty can be yours with horse milk. Packed with vitamin H, horse milk not only promotes strong bones, but also improves hair growth, bedroom performance, vertical and horizontal leap distance, muscle tone, and breath smell. Buy your Ziploc bag of horse milk today. Say nay to bovine bile and hay to horse milk. So, Zach, uh, Kentucky Derby weekend was always a weekend before your birthday until now because you didn't bump your birthday back 11, four months. What do you want to talk about with the Kentucky Derby? Well, I will start off. The, the Kentucky Derby is right around my birthday, and, and there was one time when I was uh, under 18 when he bought me a ticket uh, for a winning horse, and I won like 600 bucks. <laughs> And I remember looking at my boss, and I was like the two as a waiter, and just being, "Yeah, you can cut me now." And he was like, "No, you're closing." And I'm like, "No, I'm not closing. I just like I'm, I'm going to go collect my six hundred dollars. I'm I'm good." I hit I hit a trifecta, which I, that is the best part of a serving job. Is when you're like, "No, I made two hundred bucks before I got to work today. Uh, I'll pay someone else to take the rest of this fucking shift." Which I think is also a a good uh, preview of just the insane hypocrisy amongst all of us when it comes to the Kentucky Derby. But first, I want to talk about kind of the class aspect of the Kentucky Derby. The Kentucky Derby is very famous for all the white witch women, women in large hats, and all the rich white men in monocles and, and big top hats, uh, which is a style that has not existed since 1880, <laughs> unless you're wealthy enough to buy a top hat and have like w- w- uh, one of those debonair balls or whatever they call them, debutante balls. It's a monopoly. Yeah, yeah, you look like Mr. Monopoly. One of the reasons why this dress code apparently started is that it was explicitly supposed to separate the rich fans, the wealthy fans, from the the poorer, more working class fans. That if you saw someone in a top hat doing, you know, Abraham Lincoln cosplay in 1942 – you know they were rich, and then if you see someone who's just walking around in a t-shirt, well, you knew they were poor. And in its structure, even in the, the culture around it, there is an inherent divide among the rich and the poor. But one of the reasons why there was so much gambling at the Kentucky Derby was because they wanted to keep only rich people going there because only rich people could gamble. They have things like Millionaire's Row, which is all the celebrities, all the class comes in, and they all dress up in this cultural garb from a time of 100 years ago, 150 years ago. But I think uh, the class distinction in the Kentucky Derby is shown in the, in the greatest contrast in the fact that the Churchill Downs, uh, Kentucky Derby, a racetrack where millionaires and billionaires all take overwhelmingly their private jets to fly in, and they drive into this beautiful racetrack and they all sit and they drink their mint juleps and they fan themselves and they drink their $30 cocktails. And where it's located is you look a block away from Churchill Downs, two blocks away. You're in South Louisville, Kentucky. Now, South Louisville, Kentucky is a minority-majority town, which is a contradiction in and of itself, but is the term, the terminology that we have been taught to use. But more than anything, there's also a the household income, the median household income in South Louisville, Kentucky. Now, we also know that these stats are, are current. So we know that m- most of these households are two-income households, as most families or households are two-income households at this point because our economy is a disaster. The, the median household income is $32,000. Now, $32,000 for a household, a family of four, a family of five, 
you are, if not at the poverty line, just above it. And the poverty line is also kind of this false line where it's what people think poverty is. And in reality, poverty is, 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 a, is a slightly higher amount than that. So you have this event where you have these rich white people flying in, coming in, culturally dressing in a way that shows that they are rich. And then two blocks away is a poor city that struggles to make money. And there is nothing that shows the bullshit of the class distinctions of uh, the classism inherent in gambling, which we'll talk about, uh, and the racism, which which my dad's going to touch on, that this event embodies. Horse racing in general, but especially Kentucky Derby, is clearly a sport made by rich white guys for other rich white guys. And I think the contrast of the Churchill Downs to where they are, I think just exemplifies that in a way that is so obvious uh, and so blatant that it is hard to avoid. You look at this race and you look at these, the owners of the horses are absurdly rich. The trainers of the horses, it varies from very rich to absurdly, obscenely rich. And they're all white. And you've got, like, you've got the stable, the guys working in the stables, and uh, literally, like, shoveling shit, washing the horses, this and that. And this is all, like, just low-income, low-pay, uh, most largely Hispanic help. This is, a, this is a race, this is an event that has become, like, a, it's, it's a cultural phenomenon. And it's got this very troubled racial history. I remember many, many years ago watching the Kentucky Derby with a bunch of friends and Jim McKay saying, there's never, gonna, there's never a dry eye in the house when they sing My Old Kentucky Home. Which is, first of all, if you know the song is coming and you still cry, I, I don't know what to say to you. It's a state song of Kentucky. It's written by Stephen Foster. And they've changed the lyrics. But they've changed the lyrics in the same way that when I was around my small children and I hit my thumb with a hammer, I said, fudge. But they knew what I was really saying. The original Stephen Foster lyrics for my old Kentucky home, the state song of Kentucky, are when the sun shines down on my old Kentucky home, tis summer, the darkies are gay. And I'm going to take a two-minute side trip here. Stephen Foster, who wrote those lyrics, and when you look up Stephen Foster, it's the first song that comes up, is in the Songwriter Hall of Fame. Do you know who's not in the Songwriter Hall of Fame? Warren Zevon. Warren Zevon wrote Hasten Down the Wind. In Connecticut, we have not bowed to the pressure of lunatics to say that we should all get really, really sick so we can get a tattoo. And so we're still in quarantine. If you're still in quarantine... Here's a suggestion. Find yourself a dark room. Sit in it. Get yourself some edibles. Eat more than's appropriate. <laughs> and listen to the lyrics of Hasten Down the Wind, whose chorus is, she's so many women, he can't find the one who was his friend. So he's hanging on to half her heart, but he can't have the restless part. So he ha tells her to hasten down the wind. And listen to that for a few hours and tell me that that doesn't burrow into the soul of your fucked up life in a way that nothing ever has. And Warren Zevon's not in the Songwriter Hall of Fame 
and Stephen Foster is. It's not just a racist song. It's a tradition. 15 of the first 28 jockeys who won the Kentucky Derby were black. There was even a black owner. The first black millionaire athlete was Isaac Murphy. And all of these people, all of them were kicked out of the Kentucky Derby. It could be represented by this article in 1905 from the Washington Post that said that black men were inferior and destined to disappear from the track the same way Native American men disappeared from their homelands. Because ultimately, racism doesn't need an excuse. It'll make its own excuse. I don't know what else to say about it, but the fact that they can have a three, four, five-hour broadcast on the history of the Kentucky Derby, never mention this. That when you go to Google, the number one hit is on the history of diversity in the Kentucky Derby, which ABC did, because there's some goddamn intern who just keeps hitting refresh over and over and over and over again. The fact that Fox and Friends had someone called in when when Dartmouth protested the Kentucky Derby and they said, who better to talk about racism in the Kentucky Derby than National Review intern, and it was this like 23-year-old Tammy Lorraine with white with glasses <laughs> talking about it as opposed to like the actual person that racism is so baked into this it's so integral to our understanding of the Kentucky Derby like I don't know why we can't acknowledge oh this is a troubled history it's fun to watch horses race the people who still cry uh, to old Kentucky home are the same 50-year-old accountants that go to a Bruce Springsteen concert at Madison Square Garden and cheer when he plays Born to Run as if he's not going to fucking play Born to Run. We, and where are you running? You're not running anywhere. Right. Or, or that they're going to get on a motorcycle and leave their 403, 401ks. Yeah. It's, it's just bullshit. Zach, you had gotten to in, like the, in South Louisville, the neighborhood surrounding Churchill Downs uh, being like predominantly like black like sort of like lower income class okay here's my complicity as somebody that's been betting on fucking horses triple crown and whatever in bigger races for the better part of like 10 to 12 years but you watch the derby critically and it's like this is this is the fucking like this is as white as it gets and we talked about the masters (laughs) this this puts the this this in a way puts the the Masters is is deaf comedy jam compared to the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> it's the real kings of comedy. It's fucking a DJ. You know, yeah, it's, it's, it's Dale Hughley and Semi Entertainer. <laughs> like it's if you go to the Kentucky Derby website, okay, and you go to you want to look, look at the look, and this is what their what Churchill Downs is putting out as like their PR content, and you you click on like uh, African American history, it is literally it's a paragraph of what basically Ed said like. You know, there were the early jockeys that won were predominantly black, and then there's about a century year gap between like another black jockey even being in the fucking race, and then there's like a like a three minute YouTube Dude. video where they just sort of like say their name and like say the horse uh, they rode, two, and two, that's it. It's that's uh, the extent of the history. It's two, like two thousand two, two thousand two. 
it's like, it was the next blackjack. It was over. It was over seventy years. It's like there was a Simpsons joke when they're in Germany and they go and you know and they did the history up to nineteen thirty nine and they go, well, what happened after that? He goes, nothing, nothing happened. <laughs> it's like you're almost better off just not acknowledge it. Just why even have like a fucking like a page devoted to African American history when you're not going to literally give any sort of like commentary or like you know God, the inherent racism of this event. It's so well. I think it, it, it's it's Andrew. You bring up the masters, and I think like a good point is the masters. At least the caddies are black. <laughs> well, look, the caddies are black uh, when they had the first golfer, but all the staff are still black. And it's hard to not be like, oh, what George in Kentucky? You know, Jesus, surprise, surprise. But it's like you look at the Kentucky Derby uh, uh, crowd. It's all white guys. I'm sure if you look at the staff, it's, it's the, all black. But but it's also like. It's also like if the Masters had the first 11 winners, 11 of the 17 first winners were black and then they eliminated blacks. It is the most intentional racism in the history of the world because, as they said, well, blacks have proven their inferiority. No, they keep winning the race. We're going to assume it. In the movie version of The Handmaid's Tale, not in the book, of The Handmaid's Tale, and not in TV series, which I haven't seen, but in the movie version, uh, Joan Allen says, are there no ends that you will go to to feed your misconceptions? This is one of those things where they say, oh, no, we know we're wrong, but I don't care. We'll shove it down your throat anyway. Do you think when people go to the Kentucky Derby, when they go, they dress up in their regalia, you know, they put on their 2020 clan outfit, um, of the big hat and the top hat. Woo! <laughs> do you think that they even, do you think that they know what message they're sending? And if they do know, do they even fucking care? Yes and no. They know and they don't care. I don't, I don't think they want to, and, and you look at like the list of celebrities that are there like year to year, like who they show in the crowd. It's like between athletics and like theatrical world. I think the one person that had fun was like Wes. Remember Wes Welker a few years ago was there. He's clearly like fucking rolling on whatever, and he's just like in a in a tacky suit, and he's just throwing out cash to people. And he's like I said, he's clearly he's coked out, or he. It's like, it could have just been, I, it could have just been CTE. I think a lot, they're there to be seen, but I think I, they're they're like paid to be seen. So, so one of the things about the Kentucky Derby though is that it seems to be the last gasp of a dying sport. If we look at, in 2002, $15 billion were bet on horse racing. When you get to 2018, it's 27% lower. It's $11 billion. In 2002, they registered 33,000 foals to be thoroughbred. But by 2018, it's 20,000 because it's a 39% drop. Because at some level... People feel uncomfortable watching really small people beating the shit out of horses. One of the things that horse racing has to deal with is that we have a changing world and that conservative politics today is based on the belief, as you see the tide coming in, if you keep throwing dollars at the tide, it will stop it. And that's true until it isn't true. And so... Andrew, you're you're more of the betting expert than I am uh, because I I raised a couple of families in this time. But what's going on? Like, where do you feel like 
this fits into the culture of horse racing as a legitimate sport. The entire lifeblood of thoroughbred racing and of like permutual betting, which is like, we're at this weird time where in the next like five to 10 years, you're going to see like the, the total sort of legalization and regulation of betting, of, of sports betting, sports betting, basketball, football, baseball, hockey, down the line. But we exist in this world, and we've existed in this world for a century of like where horse racing isn't an industry without without the betting, the gambling component. But we're not here yet, and we're 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 in a place where like, as far as like legalized, regulated betting nationwide, horse racing still dominates the market. I had mentioned earlier the Derby as, and it's in terms of like prestige in the industry. I'm not sure it's like the foremost event, but it's the foremost like publicly. And it is by far the foremost bet. And like you, you look at like if horse racing has like high holidays, it's like it's the Triple Crown races, it's the Breeders' Cup. Uh, Kentucky Derby is Christmas Day for the industry, for the horse racing betting industry, for the horse racing industry in general. And it's funny because horse racing and by proxy like horse racing betting, this is a 365 day a year business. There's no days off. Tracks have been running in the wake of COVID with no fans. This industry is going and going and going. And you see it on like Fox Sports 1, NBC Sports Network. They're airing what is normally aired on like TVG, which is the like, if you go to like an OTB, like Zach, Brandon, we go to like uh, the old Gus's, whatever it's, what is, whatever it's called now. 1784 now. Where that, that is killer pizza. Killer pizza. Shout to them. But it's an OTB. You can make, you can make bets there. TVG is always what's on. There's this weird juxtaposition of the scene in your neighborhood bar with an OTB. An OTB is off-track betting because it's totally legal. And you're going to see this in like, you're going to see this 10 years from now on like football Sundays where like sports bars that offer where you can bet in the bar. There's going to be just fucking mob scenes. Okay. You juxtapose the derby, watching the derby, the setting, the the, the hats, the wealth, the, or the, or, you know, the, the pseudo wealth, whatever it is the affluence that like the patrons sort of like portray versus like your hometown like OTB where it, it could be guys like us that are just in there and we're and we're just yeah we, we got 20 bucks to spend and, and whatever and then you see the guy next to you who's who's literally betting his last <laughs> his fucking rent his fucking mortgage on this horse race and that's a horse racing culture and that and and, and that's the culture that the derby it reflects the seedy underworld undercurrent of the horse racing industry and like what like the derby really reflects largely so i thought the most desperate thing i would ever see in my life is that when zach was christened in 19 did you bet on that no i did not bet on that. <laughs> when, zach was, when zach was christened in 1989 we did a vfw hall because we were poor and I remember walking in with Shannon and Cherry, my two daughters. They were nine and ten. It was ten forty-five on a su- uh, Sunday morning, and the VFW hall was full of people drinking. They were drinking and they were eyeing my nine and ten-year-old daughters. Oh! And I thought, uh, oh, this God is almighty. as low as I'm ever gonna get in my life. However, because Zach's birthday is on on Kentucky Derby weekend, I always went into the OTB 
and I would get there at like 9.30 in the morning, and I would be watching people watching the, I don't know, Sydney Paramutuals at 9.30 in the morning, and I thought, oh, I don't think I can get lower as a human being than this moment right here, that there's something so desperate about horse racing betting. Disparity between that and the Kentucky Derby acting like it's the bell of the ball. It's just the weirdest disparity I've ever seen. Well, first of all, I had no idea. This is a first. I did not know I was christened in a VFW hall. (laughs) I feel like a whole lot of my life is now explained to me. Um, You were born to be behind the eight ball. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So a few lines before Coke. Yes. (laughs) But, Andrew, you know, when you talk about this, and, and I talked a lot a bit about this in the Kentucky Derby, is, you know, when we think about horse betting, I believe all of us are, are complicit. Pro, I believe all of us are, <laughs> not only complicit, but pro-legalized sports gambling. For sure. Yes. When most people think about horse racing, they think about the Kentucky Derby, the Belmont, and the Preakness. When I think about horse racing and gambling, I think about going to Gus's 1784, you know, the, the OTB down the street from you, Brandon, and myself. And sitting there and just being like, having a couple beers and betting the Florida Gulf Stream. You know, betting, well, betting like New Jersey based horse racing. I mean, we got to wrap this up because the Arkansas Derby's tonight. So yeah. we got to That's Zach. How, how are you going to bring up sports getting and not bring up your favorite place in Rhode Island? Oh, Twin yeah. River. I love Twin Rivers. Because <laughs> we River. can't bet on sports in Connecticut. No, yeah. It, <laughs> I have to drive an hour and a half to go fucking bet on basketball. Why can't I just walk down the fucking yeah. street? Exactly. It's, it's coming. And, it's coming. And, and, and I think about like when you think about the the gambling aspect and I mentioned this a little bit in the, in the classism is you can't think about betting and horse racing and only focus on the main three which I think is what most people do. It, it, you have to look at it from the macro level which is yeah every, you know hey everyone you know most people I'll bet 20 bucks on whatever whore, American Pharaoh at the Derby. The reality of sports betting is at the Derby they explain Explicitly try to make it for rich people only to bet. But the reality of horse betting is more like what we see every day, which is guys with their last 10 bucks buying a bush light and putting five bucks on a horse hoping they can win enough to get the next bush light, ourselves included. It, I think, perverts sports gambling in general and kind of perverts it in a way that makes the class distinction of gambling between rich and poor so much more apparent. And one of the problems is that to bet on horse racing is to overlook just the extraordinary cruelty to these animals. Now, it is true that dog racing, which I went to when I was in my early teens, because my parents brought me when we were in in New Hampshire, because my parents decided to to go vacation in a place for two weeks where there was nothing to do. Like, dog racing is now kind of moved into the dog fighting area of where you can be. Horse racing is almost moved there. In 2012, there was a creation of what's called the Walter Hayes Oats Alliance, which is formed by former horse racing owners and trainers who were worried that the, their sport was being killed by the fact that people were rejecting it because of animal cruelty. And they formed the Walter Hayes Oats Alliance, which I have never seen anywhere referred to as by the acronym WOE. 
because I believe Joey Lawrence from Blossom sued them <laughs> under, under that. This was formed by the Jockey Club, which is a big horse racing corporation in California. And they created a bill that would limit the amount of drugs that were taken before events or the real problem with horse racing is that the horses are drugged so that they don't feel pain. And because they don't feel pain, they race themselves into death. Like that is literally the problem. The jockey club weight oats Alliance was formed because they believed that that was going to destroy horse racing. And they created a bill that ended up being killed by Mitch McConnell. And I would like to point out that Mitch McConnell is to America what small traces of peanut oil are for people with peanut allergies. <laughs> is that if you trace the thing that's killing you back far enough, you'll find small traces of peanut oil or you'll find Mitch McConnell. You'll find one or both. And Mitch McConnell killed it. And my favorite thing about this is that the New York Times, and I subscribe to the New York Times because I believe in good journalism, but the New York Times believes that the goal of journalism is not to be biased, but to be never be accused of being biased, which means that they just bow to the worst faith arguments available. In the article in 2018, they described the uh, Churchill Incorporated, which is, of course, a, a Kentucky horse-raising coalition. They described him as Mitch McConnell's patrons as opposed to donators. And when I saw that, it was the equivalent of when I was 11 and I saw a breast in Newsweek, a woman's breast in Newsweek, <laughs> because it was like, holy shit, it's not much, but my God, look where I found it. And that's really the problem, that until horse racing gets its own act together, they're like much of the conservative movement, standing at the shore of the ocean saying, if we keep throwing money at the waves, the waves will stop. To that note, there, at 2011, and this is like the, the height of like prestige TV, and HBO, really at the, at the peak of their powers, they, they have this show called Luck. Okay, and they, their first season comes out, and it's Dustin Hoffman in the lead. It's David Milch who created it. And this is a guy from NYPD Blue, Deadwood, great shows. I mean, this show was going to be a hit, and it was a hit. It was a commercial hit. It was a critical hit. They are one season. And the whole precipice of the show is like, it's about the life of a guy vested in the like in, in the racetrack industry. It's, it's a show about horse racing in like the criminal sort of underworld, and that's the whole sort of like narrative of it. Uh, and it's really good. That show never sees like a second season or third season or fourth season because it gets canceled after one season because during production and they tried they have that HBO budget at this time and they try to do like horse races and like two horses die during production of the first episode. Another horse dies, I believe, in the seventh episode of production. And what HBO does is they they shut it down. They say we can't we can't do this. Recent memory, Santa Anita Park. Um, Santa Anita in California is sort of like Churchill Downs is to Kentucky what sort of Belmont Park in New York would be to East Coast Racing, Churchill Downs in the, in the, in the South, Gulfstream Park in like the South, Southeast, and like Santa Anita as like the sort of West Coast 
that's the premier racetrack in the West Coast. They've hosted Breeders' Cups. Like, it's uh, one of the big Kentucky Derby prep races is held at Santa Anita. In early 2019, upwards of 30 horses died on that track. The, the visual of the jockey and the whip and the horse, there's, in, when you're betting, when you're watching, there's an immorality to that. And, it's, it, and that in itself is, like, sort of tough to, like, kind of rationalize. The Kentucky Derby is the biggest reflection of an industry that is it's inhumane. It's, it's it, it, the industry is is inhumane at its core, and it's a it's it's tough to reconcile. So the Kentucky Derby um, is emblematic of American horse racing, and, and we have two and a half or five times between two and a half and five times more deaths for racehorses than any other country which is not the kind of American exceptionalism that we're used to talking about. However, I think this is an appropriate time to talk about it, even though the Kirby didn't happen today. It is 50 years since um, Diane Crump became the first female jockey in the Kentucky Derby. And it's also the Kentucky Derby that 50 years ago was memorialized in Hunter Thompson's uh, decadence and depravity at the Kentucky Derby one of the greatest pieces of journalism I have ever read. And I strongly recommend you do that. And because normally the, this show features me talking shit on Bill Simmons, it was a Grantland article in 2013 that brought that to the public, back to public attention. And I hope everybody reads this. And until then, next week, we're going to talk about the NCAA, which is... Uh, another way that racism and athlete abuse is incurred. And until then, we will see you. Stay safe. Enjoy your week. And we are the Bill Bradley Collective. Thank you for joining us on the Bill Bradley Collective. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe. We'll see you all next week. Subscribe.